Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 15 through 20. Ezra chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, leading men, and for Joirib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. And Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, and the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our distress, but at the right time you sent Jesus Christ, your Son, to live, to do your work on this earth perfectly in all respects, to be betrayed crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected forever. It is through this One, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne beside you, that we have our hope. And so Lord, show us Your Word today. Even more, implant Your Word within us and teach us so that we would be more in Your image after our encounter with You. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our mighty Lord, we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, we began to consider the preparations of Ezra for his return to Jerusalem in this very passage of Scripture. And as we ended our time we began to focus specifically on the preparations he made in regard to who needed to be among the faithful in his return. You may recall the situation described in this passage that when the men who had answered the call to return to Jerusalem, about 1,500 of them plus their families, when they gathered in muster near the Ahava Canal, no Levites were found anywhere in their numbers. And after a powerful delegation was sent to the leader of the Levites at Casiphia, a neighborhood in Babylonia, we are told that the good hand of our God was on us. And 41 Levites, along with 220 of their servants, joined the caravan following God's call to return to Jerusalem. 
And when we reached this section last week, we discussed, in effect, the question, what would we do today if we noticed some people missing? And today I would like to consider this question both in the light of Ezra's actions and words and in the light of other parts of Scripture. But please do not make the mistake of assuming that this is either a philosophical or a hypothetical question for us. It is a question of neither sort. Were it a mere philosophical question, we could muse about the best responses to laggards. We could sit here and debate the best actions. What should we do about those who are missing? And we could make reasoned judgments about our most profitable actions. And in the end, we could leave unchanged because we held the truth at arm's length. We cannot deal with this as a philosophical dilemma precisely because this is not a hypothetical question. The truth is, as I teased last week at the end of the message, there are people who are, there are people slow to join or absent from our congregations who should be here. And the sad truth is that many, perhaps most American churches, will rarely lift a finger to bring them along unless they see something in it for them. And that was not, as I alluded to last week, Ezra's motivation in gathering the Levites prior to his departure. The temple in Jerusalem had been humming along for 70 years with the Levites who had already returned. And their children and their grandchildren, and in some cases, their great-grandchildren serving in those roles. Ezra wasn't merely looking to increase those ranks. His primary concern was not leaving any of God's people behind. He wanted to make sure anyone God was calling was included in obedience in their return. But the disturbing question is, is that our concern as well? I believe in the Reformed Baptist faith because I think it is the closest I have found to the key tenets of Scripture. And I think that within that faith, the five points of what is often called Calvinism summarize accurately the salvation offered by God. But there is a trap some Calvinists fall into and with which we all must struggle at some time or another. Now, it's not confined to Calvinists, but the wording of it here is how a Calvinist might state it. And it is this. I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation so He can save someone without my help. He doesn't need me to lift a finger in His service. Pardon me for being blunt, but this hellish idea is nothing more than laziness and faithlessness pretending to be faith. It is sin masquerading as sincerity. 
It is the spiritual equivalent of me asking one of my kids to take out the trash. But then they simply ignore the command, reasoning that dad will take care of it if I don't. The trash will be taken out if dad wants it out. The person will be saved if God wants them to be saved. Those are equivalent rationales for our sloth. If you would turn your attention in your Bibles from Ezra over to the book of Matthew, I'd like to take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. We read the parallel passage this morning in Luke. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. But when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. Remember that word. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Those words are just as true today as they were when Jesus first spoke them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now you may say to me, how can you possibly say that? I have never heard of a time when Jesus Christ was so denigrated. I have never heard of a time when atheism and humanism and idolatry were so rampant. I have never heard of a time when people were so selfish in seeking their own pleasure or their own entertainment. How can you say there is a great harvest waiting? Very simply, I say it unapologetically on the authority of Scripture. John 12, 32 says the words of Jesus, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He was describing how He would die by being lifted up on the cross, but in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He will draw all people to Him. And it is our job to proclaim that simple event. It is our job. It is what we have been commanded to do. And if we fail in that commandment, it is because we do not see the multitudes out there with the same compassion that Jesus felt. We are guilty of judging them instead. We are guilty of looking at their sin and saying how horrible. It would be like looking at sheep without a shepherd whose wool is matted and muddy. Jesus had compassion on them. We don't want to touch them. And that is our sin. Because our hearts do not break 
over the sheep who have no shepherd. And so look again at Matthew 9.38 and let us examine what he is saying here. He begins with the words, pray earnestly. There's sometimes I'm really quite embarrassed for the English language. This phrase is probably the best translation for the Greek word here, but it doesn't touch the depth of it. It doesn't capture the depth of the desperation involved in that word. An older word found in the New American Standard Version is beseech. But unfortunately, we don't use that word very often. King James and the Holman Christian Standard, I didn't look in every translation, they just say pray. And both of them just don't do that word justice. Because that word, pray earnestly, is the same word used to describe the action of the father who had the demon-possessed son that the disciples were unable to deal with. When he walked up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. It is the cry of a desperate father who has no other hope. It is used to describe the leper who came looking for Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, while, he, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It is the cry of somebody who has no other hope And so when Jesus says, pray earnestly, He is saying, go before the throne of God and storm it. It has the idea of gripping them, binding the person that you're begging, holding on to them, praying like your life depended on it. It reminds me of of what happened a little bit before our Old Testament reading. In Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob was alone in the wilderness about to confront his brother for the first time since he had robbed him of everything he was due. And the scripture tells us, beginning in verse 24 of Genesis 32, that Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. We are to take these desperate prayers to the Lord of the harvest. When was the last time you prayed in desperation for the lost? Not just maybe one person, but multitudes. Because the fields are white to harvest. When was the last time you've stormed the gates of heaven in prayer? Or simply persistently kept returning your desperate request to God? Jesus in Luke 18 Verses 7 and 8, in the parable of the persistent widow, calls that faith. 
He says, and will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. And so Jesus says, go and pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Bow down before him, beg him. But what are we supposed to be asking him to do? For him to send out laborers into his harvest. And that word for send out literally means to thrust forward, to push out laborers into His harvest. And it is His harvest. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-9. through 9. As Paul says, I have planted, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Yes, God causes the growth. Yes, God is responsible for the salvation of anyone who will be saved. We saw that in the passage in Luke today. It is only to those that the Son has revealed the Father that can believe. But it does not absolve us of the responsibility to preach high and low, near and far, the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone we can. Because we are God's fellow workers. In our time, it is not the harvest that is paltry. It is the number of laborers who are working on it. But perhaps you're asking, what kind of labor are we talking about? Is this about becoming a preacher? Because I don't preach. Maybe. God could make Moses preach. But not everybody's called to preach. Ephesians 4.11 tells us, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Those are certainly not the only gifts given, but they are all given for one purpose, to glorify God and to build up His church. 1 Corinthians 12.4-6 says, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who who empowers them all in everyone. It is long past time when we should heed the call of God from Isaiah 6-8, where He heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah responded, Here am I, send me. But Isaiah heard that call and saw this vision, and of all places, a worship service in the temple. And the call was being made to every single person in attendance. Isaiah had the eyes to see and the ears to hear the call of God and was given the ability to heed that call. 
But we also need to be careful lest we think that laboring in God's harvest is something to be casually accomplished. For the follower of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel is not a hobby. It is our primary job. Let me say that again. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a hobby. It is our primary job. Even if somebody pays you to be an electrician, or a school teacher, or a fireman, or a soldier, or a pizza twirler, or a radio disc jockey, everything you do in that profession one day will be useless. But the work that you do in God's harvest will endure forever. Is it your testimony that Jesus Christ has changed your life? That He has saved you from your sin and delivered you to His righteousness? If so, has He then changed the purpose of your life from living for yourself and your goals to living to glorify Him and enjoying Him forever? Has your life been turned around so much that your primary reason for living is God's glory and not your own comfort, leisure, or needs? In the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 19, the verb tenses can be translated there, going and making disciples of all nations. I've heard Preachers water that down for years. The point of telling you this is not to tell us to live our life and then kind of work in Jesus wherever we can. That's not the point of the verb tenses that are there. What Jesus is stating is His assumption that His people will respond to His call. His people will follow Him. And that in our going to all nations, in our making disciples of all nations, we will baptize and teach everything that Jesus has taught us through the Scriptures. Is everyone called to be a missionary in a foreign country? I will only say that far more are called than actually follow that call. But often it's much harder to be a missionary for Jesus Christ right where you are. They don't know you in deepest, darkest Africa. You go with a clean slate. Here, everybody knows what you were like when you grew up. Here, everyone knows the mistakes you have made. Here are all the temptations that entangle you. Here is where you have things dialed in so much that you can focus on your comfort and your leisure. Here is where your zeal for the gospel might be entangled with political beliefs. Here is where you might have retaliation at work for telling your co-workers about the grace of Jesus Christ. Here is where you've developed habits that keep you from radically changing your life to follow Jesus. 
God may very well be calling you to deepest, darkest Africa. He may be calling you to Japan or Romania or to preach the gospel somewhere else in the earth. Begin here. Begin where you are because you are, the, you are responsible for preaching the gospel where you are and then following Jesus wherever He leads you to go. I can tell you as surely as God was calling those Levites to step out in radical obedience with Ezra, God is calling you to a radical obedience in following our Lord Jesus Christ today. In this story, there are only two characters you can put yourself into the place of. That is Ezra and his faithful or the Levites. We are either the ones who have answered the call, but we must go back and make sure that all the people that God is calling are brought along. Or we are the ones who have lagged behind. And we need to heed the call. We're in one of those two camps. And let us pray. Let us pray earnestly and diligently and desperately to the Lord of the harvest to give us a church filled with obedient servants that He has thrust forth into His work. And let us pray that if that servant is us, that we would joyously follow His command. And let us pray that the cry of our heart would be for the harvest to be brought in to our Lord's keeping. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess we have been far too casual about following You. Your first disciples were called to leave family and homes, jobs, They were called to leave everything that they could have relied on to rely completely on You. But when they despaired of bread, You gave them bread. When they despaired of circumstance, You calmed the sea. When they despaired that You had gone, You rose again and appeared in their midst. We find sufficiency only in You. And I pray that as Your people, You would make us more dependent on You and less dependent on ourselves. Send workers, thrust out workers into the harvest. Thrust us out if we have fallen behind. You great Lord of the harvest, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only Lord, the one and only Son, who has given us the good news to carry to the world. Amen.